the great preacher Donald Barnhouse, and again, he lived in Philly, but um, was familiar with big, big um, cities living in Philadelphia. But he related this story, this imaginary story, but he said, if you were walking down some important street in the midst of a great crowd and should see a dirty beggar child holding out his hand towards you, your heart would be moved to pity. We went to uh, Tijuana years ago, and there were the beggar children on the streets, and your heart does go out to pity. But if that child kept running after you and called out to you, mother or father, when you have never seen the child before, you would be stirred to righteous indignation. What right would that child have to attract attention to you and turn the gaze of the passerbys from the children's filth, child's filth to you? Desire on the part of the child cannot create a parental relationship. But if you go to the child in the street and lead him to your home and give him new cleanliness and new clothing and adopt him into your family, then he has the right to call you father. And the law will recognize that right. But the right and authority must be given by you, right? That's how it happens. And when it comes to God, that's how it happened. It wasn't that we cried out to him. It's that he came to us and he adopted us into his family and made us his own sons and his own daughters. And that's what we see in Galatians chapter 3, which we looked at last week. And let me just review, because if you look at 3.26, we've realized that Paul has gone from talking about the law, which leads us to Christ, to actually becoming a child of God. And in verse 26, you see the word sons of God. Look at that, verse 26, 326. We are sons of God. And he leads us all the way down to verse 29 when he says that we have inherited, we are heirs to the promise, the Abrahamic promise. We are heirs to the Abrahamic promise that a man can be justified by faith in Christ alone. Just like Abraham. Remember what it says of Abraham? He what? Believed God and what? Accounted him to righteousness. We were heirs to God as far as heirs to Abrahamic promise. But notice what Paul goes on in chapter 4, 1 to 7, and that's the passage for today. He then talks about verse 1, an heir, but an heir when he's little is like a slave. But he's going to bring us all the way up to verse 7, which says we are an heir of God. So this is what Paul is, this is the whole theme, and this is one whole section. It's unfortunate that chapter 3 ends with verse 29, because it really should end with chapter 4, verse 7. Because he talks about sonship, being an heir of the Abrahamic promise. But now today we're going to be looking at not only an heir of the Abrahamic promise, but an actual heir of God. We are an inheritor of what God is going to give us. You see the progression there? Sonship, heir of the Abrahamic promise, which is the Old Testament. Now we're talking about as far as an heir of God himself. And so we saw a number of things last week. Actually, four to be specific. Verse 26, six, that we are son of God. Why? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ. We are not a son of God because we have worked our way to heaven. Done works of righteousness. Works of righteousness cannot save us. It's having faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross that saves us. And, and the question has to be asked for you. Have you received Jesus Christ? Because unless you receive Christ, you cannot be a son of God. You can't earn it. But look at the second blessing that we get. We have union with Christ. Verse 27 says, you've been baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. 
You're unified. That's a new connection. You are so unified and united with Jesus Christ, being baptized into his body, that as God looks at you, he sees Christ. Which is huge, because if you have failed God this week, sometimes we run away from God when we have sinned. And what God wants us to do is come and confess our sins, forsake our sins. He will forgive our sins. We can walk with him. Why? Because we are one with Christ. We are united with Christ. And number three, look at the blessing of being one with other Christians. Not only are we one with Christ, but we have a new, bo- a new family, a new body, a new fellowship. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Jesus Christ wiped out all the distinctions. Now again, there's still male and female here. And some of you are Jews, perhaps, and most of you are Gentiles, but not in Christ. There is equality in the body of Jesus Christ. And we need to live towards that equality, live that equality out, how we love each other. In other words, there is no racial, social, or sexual differences in the body of Christ. It's all been abolished. My wife, being a woman, is as equal in the body of Christ as I am being a man. Now, that never was in the, old, in the ancient world. She was considered less than, okay? Remember I said the rabbis would wake up every morning and thank God that he was not born a woman. But see, that was wiped out with Christ. And then finally, verse 29, the blessing of being an heir according to the promise. But again, the promise there was the Abrahamic promise. Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. So we had all these promises, but now Paul is actually, as it were, upping upping the ante, (laughs) showing us that we even have more in Christ, more because you're saved. And he goes to verse 1, and he says this, Now I say that the heir... Now again, remember, he's talking about heir. He just said that in verse 29. I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from the slave. He doesn't differ at all from a slave. Though he is the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. This first major point is this. We are treated like a slave, but still a son. Now what is he referring to? He's talking about our, our progress towards Christ. Remember back uh, uh, in in chapter uh, 3, in verse 24, he talked about a tutor, that the law brought us to Christ. Now just think of, he's using a cultural illustration, because again, back then, young boys, uh, four or five years old, all the way up to 14, 15, 16, 17, somewhere around there, uh, if you were a wealthy family, you would hire a tutor. Actually, you would hire a number of people, and he mentioned some other ones right here. Uh, guardian and a steward. Those are all separate terms. The, the tutor was in verse 24 of chapter 3, and then we see the guardian and the steward. In other words, different people were responsible to bring this child along so that it wasn't the father's, uh, all his time was taken up with the child. But these people were responsible to bring him along. So Paul is just using a, a cultural illustration. And and this word child, he is a child, is is referring to an infant, a minor, um, someone actually that even couldn't talk. That's how young he's referring to. And then at certain points, the toga virilis, we looked at last week, the Roman ceremony that brought this child at about 14 to adulthood. The bar mitzvah for the Jew. The Greeks had the same type of a ceremony where no longer was this child under the servant, under the guardian, under the tutor. He entered into adulthood. He had rights and responsibilities of a son. But this is the point. Before that point in time, this child was considered really nothing more than like a little slave. Now, he would be called young master. 
Why? He was, he was going to be the master of the home, but he was young. He, he wasn't given the responsibilities yet, okay? Young master. That's how the, the uh, servant would refer to this young child. Let's say he's nine years old. Let's say I, get, I got a young master for, uh, I mean, uh, I got a, a, a servant for, um, and a tutor for Colton. Colton's 10 years old. He would be called young master. Hi, young master. Again, because he would be the inheritor someday, but he's young. He's not yet there, okay? How, do you, how does that sound to you, Caleb, young master? <laughs> okay. See, he was, a, he was an heir by legal right, but not heir in fact at that moment because he was too young. Now, Paul applies that to the spiritual realm. Even so, verse 3, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. And what he's, the elements of the world there is he's referring to human religion, under the law. He's saying, listen, before we came to Christ, we were under the law. It was our tutor. It was our guardian. It was bringing us along, pointing us towards Christ. But even though that we were going to be a son through election, you were still like a slave at that moment. You should get the point. So he's saying, listen, before salvation, you were, you were like a slave because you were just being led along, even though someday you were going to become a son of God, you would receive Christ. So that's the first uh, point that he's making in verses 1 to 3. We were treated like a slave, but still a son. When? When we were being told by the law what to do. The law was condemning us. It was telling us that we were uh, not right before God, but it was pointing us like a tutor to Christ. He's the one. He's the one that can create, make you into a son. Now again, a lot of people want to be religious. A lot of people look religious and they think they're saved because they are religious. And that's, that's the type of people that uh, Paul is referring to. You don't get saved because you do the law. You don't get saved because you're good. You are saved because you have received the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, there's an interesting story of John Wesley. Do you remember that English preacher of a few hundred years ago, actually? This is, this is the story of John Wesley. He was, a, he was an honor graduate of, of Oxford University and an ordained clergyman of the Church of England and orthodox in his theology. In other words, he had this right theology. He was active in practical good works, regularly visiting the inmates of prisons and workhouses in London and helping distribute food and clothing to the slum children and the orphans. He studied the Bible diligently and attended numerous Sunday services as well as various other services during the week. He generously gave offerings to the church and alms to the poor. He prayed, he fasted, and he lived an exemplary moral life. He even spent several years as a missionary to the American Indians in what was then the British colony of Georgia. Now look at, listen to all that he did. Yet upon returning to England, he confessed in his journal, quote, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. Later reflecting on his pre-conversion condition, he said this, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. He's really referring to like Galatians 3, or Galatians 4. He was a servant under the law. He thought he was doing the law. He thought he was righteous before God. Then he realized he wasn't even saved. Wesley tirelessly did everything he could to live a life acceptable, acceptable to God. Yet he knew something vital was missing. It was not until he went, quote, very unwillingly to a society. Uh, it was a Bible study on a particular street. 
So he went to this Bible study. He who had led people to Christ. He who had himself was a preacher. And that he claimed true Christian life. He wrote, at that point he received Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. End quote. That is one of the most phenomenal uh, stories. Here's a preacher who did so many good things and yet was not saved. Now, how does that apply to us? You may be going down the path of good things, doing good works, and yet Titus says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, what? According, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Mercy, mercy found on the cross. Jesus Christ dying for sinners. The law's purpose was not to save us, was not to make us righteous. It was to show us that we weren't and we needed a Savior, right? So again, I ask you, have you truly put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because that's where assurance is found. That's where salvation is found. Otherwise, you may just be on the treadmill of works righteousness, which is not pleasing to God. So Paul says, listen, it was the elementary things of the world, human religion. That's all it was. It was, we were in bondage to that. We were slaves to that because we were under its condemnation. But it was doing a purpose. It was a tutor. It was bringing us to Christ. It was pointing the way because we knew we could not keep the law. We move there to look at verse 4. But, I always love buts in Scripture. But, right, transition here. But, when the fullness of time came, or the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, now catch this, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. But <clears throat> the law could not save. And you might say, well, what happened to all those Old Testament saints? Well, they could still look forward to the time when the Messiah would come. So they could be saved. Abraham was saved. But here, now the Messiah is actually coming. This is, I mean, Paul is telling us, how do you actually become a son of God? And the, the fill-in, if, you if you're doing your outline, is we, receive, we received as a son, but make sure you put a small s. <laughs> received as a son because of the son. Because of the son of God. In other words, I am received as a son of God with the Father. I am a, a child of His because of the son, because of what Christ did on the cross. And really, in these verses 4 and 5, he breaks us down about five different parts of, the, of Christ's coming. Okay, Let me give them to you quickly. The first of all is the timing of the Son's coming. This is Jesus Christ I'm talking about. What was his timing? Look at verse 4 again. But when the fullness of time had come, that word fullness refers to the completion of the period of preparation of God's sovereign timetable. In other words, it was all part of God's sovereign timetable. When the fullness of time had come, at that perfect moment in history, <coughs> Jesus Christ came to this earth, sent by God the Father. Why? So that he would redeem man for redemption. That's the timing. You may say, what do you mean the timing? What do you mean, what do you mean the timing was perfect? The, t- the timing was perfect of Christ's return, or Christ's coming in a number of ways. First of all, it was perfect. It was right culturally. Culturally, it was perfect. Again, the Greeks, because of Alexander the Great and his conquering, and in that known world at the time, Alexander the Great made Greek the language. Okay, 
So the world of that time where Paul ministered all around that entire uh, Mediterranean was all Greek speakers. Now what did that do? That meant that a person could travel anywhere there and be heard and be understood. Now think about how important that was. As soon as Christ died and the gospel went out, it was able to go out effectively. Why? Because everybody knew Greek. Everybody could speak it. Everybody understood it. So it was perfect and right culturally. The language of the world was in place. So the good news about the sacrificial death of Christ was quickly understood. It's not like if you sent me to Spain. Think about that. And you drop me right in Spain. What is it? Madrid? Madrid. Right there. And you know what I'd be like? Well, probably like this. Why is that bull running around? No. <laughs> I don't know anything. I took French for two years in high school, and I still don't know any French. So if I go to France, that would even be worse. You know. But the point is, I would know nothing. I'd have to learn it, then be able to... Not when it comes to the first century... It was all Greek speakers. They, Paul went out and he could speak to anybody. It was right culture. How about politically? That's what, this is what the Romans gave us. Politically, the Romans gave us peace and transportation. All, leads, all roads lead to Rome. They're, the system of the Roman roads made it so that Paul could get from point A to point B. And the gospel could go from point A to point B. And then there was the Roman peace the Pax Romana. What's interesting is there had been like 200 years of war up to about 29 B.C. But in 29 B.C. to about 180 A.D. for about 200 years, there was peace in the kingdom. Why is that important? Because again, the message could get out. Now there was persecution among the Christ- to the Christians, but as far as war, there was no war in the Roman Empire at that time. So the, it was right culturally, the, or the politically, the Romans gave the world peace and transportation so that... No, they didn't know this, but God did. That's why the the message could get out. In fact, some estimate estimate that Paul alone, the Apostle Paul alone, journeyed by land and by water a total of more than 15,000 miles in his life. That's just like unheard of back then. But think of all the port cities and there was... uh, You could go from... You could go from like Rome to like Spain, I think it was in two days. I mean, it was, it was just unbelievable, the, the system of boats, the system of roads and transportation and all that. And so the, the message got out. Excuse me, Rome to Spain in four days and to Africa in two. I mean, it's not quite as quick as me jumping in the car and getting to my parents' house for in two hours, but, you know, back then, when you're talking months, now it turned to days. You know, the time was right religiously as well. Remember, the Jews went off into captivity because of their idolatry. But after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews as a whole never went back to idolatry as a nation. Their hearts were set to want to follow Jehovah. And even if you talk about the pagans, they had all those Greek gods, but you know, it was just, um, they were giving up their Greek gods. In other words, the culture was moving away from idolatry. There was a vacuum being created, and when Christ came, the vacuum was fulfilled in Christ. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? There was this need in people's hearts, and the Greek gods weren't meeting the need. So culturally, it was the right time, politically, religiously, and then finally, morally, it was right. Even though they weren't following the gods, now catch this, morally, they were bankrupt. 
There was decadence, debauchery, degeneration, decline, and divorce. I put them all in D's. But the point is, the whole Roman Empire was just a debacle. I mean, it was just, it was just basically... What had, had, had happened is, because of the wars before 29 B.C., they had all this money and wealth flowing into Rome, Roman Empire. And people got lazy. They stopped working. And when they stopped working, they started playing. And with sinful hearts, you don't just play, you play sinfully, right? And what do you do? You start playing sinfully, and for them, it was the amphitheater. It was the Colosseum. It was the gladiators. It was death and destruction, and it got more and more degenerate. And obviously, if you see all that, you're not going to keep marriages together and families together. And you had children literally being sold into slavery because they were a bother, and and sensuality and immorality was was off the charts. And in large cities, the lack of work ruined the masses. And this is what their little phrase was. Just give us bread and games. Now think about that. Just give us bread and games. Give us food and entertainment and we'll be okay. (coughs) And if you think of America, what I just said, you could fit America right there. Just give us bread and games. By day, they loitered idly around and in the evening, they went to the amphitheater. In fact, one interesting illustration, the Flavian Amphitheater was after the, the Emperor Flavian. When it was inaugurated, when it was started at, at his dedication, it seat 54,000 people. I mean, that's like a, that's like a, col- a college stadium. I mean, that, that's unbelievable for ancient uh, Rome. It, it seated 54,000 people, and the dedication lasted for 120 days, 12,000 beasts and 10,000 gladiators lost their lives in that, in that 120 days. See, in other words, there was just decadence and the people went to the Colosseum and the amphitheaters to see immorality and death and they were okay with it. And it was a perfect time. When the fullness of time came, Jesus Christ stepped into human history. It was right It was right because it was the right language. There was peace. There was roads. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah. The, the, the pagans were rejecting their Greek gods. And there was so much filth that people said, you know, help. And Christ came to this earth in the fullness of time. Well, let's look at the second thing. God sent his son, okay? In the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's, that's referring to the origin of Christ's coming. In other words, how did Christ come? God sent. God sent. This testifies to his eternal deity. The fact that the Son was sent shows that he existed before he was born in Bethlehem. You get that? You see how that's deity? It's not that he became, he, he, he was sent because he existed from all eternity. Just like John 1 says, In the beginning was the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God, but he came and and dwelt among us. That's the origin of Christ's coming. He was sent because he's the second uh, member of the Trinity. And then the third part of the coming, the manner of Christ's coming. He was born of a woman. Wait a second, he came, but he's born. And that's referring to the virgin conception. By the way, not the virgin birth. What was miraculous was the conception. But actually, it refers more to not just the fact that he was conceived, but that he, he was human. The, this is the point. God sent. Jesus was God. Born of a woman, what? 
human, the God-man. In the perfect moment of human history, the God-man stepped onto this earth and was born. To say that a human mother gave him birth is to say that God the Son became a human being, which is, again, uh, miraculous. Fully God, fully man. And then finally, actually, the condition. He was born under the law. What do you mean under the law? In other words, under all the stipulations of the law. He, and he lived out the law perfectly, without sin, Hebrews says. That was perfect act of obedience. Born a Jew, obeyed the law, bound to obey the law. He kept the law. He kept the Ten Commandments. Actually, he kept all 613 commandments. You know, there's 613 commandments. And Jesus Christ walked this earth actively obeying every part of the law. He fulfilled the law. Didn't break any part of it. But not only did he actively obey, he perfectly passively obeyed. What do you mean? He... He lived perfectly, but accepted the death penalty for his people that they deserved because they broke the law. You get the point? He lived under the law. He kept it perfectly, but then because he kept it perfectly, he went to the cross and he sacrificed himself for your sin because you didn't keep it perfectly. Perfect act of obedience, perfect passive obedience. As Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, on account of your sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What do you mean fulfilled in us? Because as I received Christ, it's fulfilled in me. I didn't keep the law perfectly. I've sinned this week. But I'm in Christ. I'm one with him. As God sees me, he sees Christ. As God sees me, he sees Christ. And therefore, Romans says that I fulfilled the law. Because I'm in him. So again, everything that Paul has said up to this point, I want you to get this. His perfect timing, his his eternal deity, he's God. He's the fact that he's born of a woman, he's man. That he came, he, he fulfilled perfect obedience, both passive and active leads us to the point of verse, uh, verse 5. It says, to redeem us, to redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the law, but he redeems those who are under the law. We are under the law. We're under its crushing con- condemnation, its wrath. You know, all the law does, it's like a blinking light. You know, it's like when you're going down the road, dark, and all of a sudden you see this caution light, but it says, you know, Stop. Why? Because they're doing construction. You can't go any farther. Stop. That's what the law does. Stop. You can't earn your, your salvation on your own. And so Christ came, and that's the purpose of Christ coming, to redeem us. That word redeem, it, I left, I think I even left the Greek word in the, it's ex agorizo, ex, ex. What does ex mean? Out, to buy out. Uh, ag, agarao, uh, agora is the word marketplace. So he, Paul says, ex agorazo. What do you mean? Christ bought me out of the marketplace. That's what redeem means. Well, what do you mean marketplace? In other words, I was a slave to sin. I was on, on, the, on the slave block of sin, and I had no hope. By the way, a slave has no hope 
of being purchased on their own. They're just there waiting to be some master to purchase them. That's how they would do in the ancient world. You would put a slave up there, and, and they would just wait to, for their next master. And we were on that slave block, and we had no power. We were helpless for our future. And Christ came, and he exorazos. He redeemed us. He purchased us. Except he didn't purchase us with money. He purchased us with his own blood. Peter says with the precious blood of Christ, right? And he purchased us and he brought us. But, but notice the payment of the price of the blood and the death of Christ purchased us. But then he took us, not just, re, not, um, the first word could just mean that you purchase. But he purchased us, and I'll catch this, and he took us out of the marketplace. See, because the point is he's not going to sell us to some other master. And now we're free. So the word really means that he purchased and then freed us, which is going to play in huge when we get to Galatians 5, that we are free in Christ and all that means. See, that's why I'm spending so much time here because once you get to the freedom issues of Galatians 5, it puts it in the context. Wait a second. I don't have freedom just to live my life however I want to live it. I have freedom to live my life the way that my master wants me to live it. And so he redeemed us. He paid the penalty. You know, it's sad that um, the whole thing of the cross and the sacrifice is so downplayed. And even among pastors, I, I came across this one illustration. In 1999, a Lutheran pastor in Germany gained notoriety by arguing that the manger and not the cross should be the symbol of Christianity. The cross, she said, is too threatening. It certainly is not inviting as a, ba- as, as, as a baby Jesus asleep on the hay. That's what she said. Yeah, it wasn't even a man. Christianity is not about a stable and straw. It's about a sacrifice and death, right? It's sad. People don't want to hear about the blood. It's too offensive. Don't talk about the cross. Talk about the nice Jesus. But the reality is he came to die. He came to sacrifice. It was his blood, his sacrifice, his death that redeemed us. So... As John Stout writes, So the divinity of Christ, okay, that's God sent, and the humanity of Christ, that's born of a woman, and the righteousness of Christ, that's born under the law, qualified him to be our Redeemer. If he had not been a man, he could not not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. He had to be a man, a righteous man, and the righteous son of God who was a man to be able to be the redeemer. Because being, the, being God, God's son, being uh, God himself, his sacrifice had infinite value. That means that he didn't just die for one his, his death has value for anybody that wants to come. And so in the perfection of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem men. That's the first purpose. That's why he came. He did not come so that we might have Christmas. And yet Christmas comes before Easter. You have to have his birth before his death. But then Paul gives us a second reason, as the adoption of sons. 
that we might receive adoption of son. Not only did he take us out of the slave market, see, he could have just freed us and then we just live our own life. But now Paul says, no, no, no. And he brought us out of the slave market and placed us right into his family. Adoption of sons. Taking us from one family, Satan's, to God's family. Again, Christ not only freed us, but he also provided us with adoption papers. You know what I'm saying? He provided you with adoption papers. Very, very important. Made you his very own. Made you one of his kids. And that's why he's able to call us brethren. In fact, after his resurrection, he said, Go to my brethren. Why? Because you're, my, you're my, part of my family. I made you part of my family. Something that you couldn't do because you were condemned under the law. Well, let's go to the third thing that... Not only has he made us a son, but look at this, the assurance of being a son. Because again, there's always this question. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at actually the same term, Abba, Father, from Romans 8. Not only are we adopted, but we are adopted with such an intimate relationship with the Father that we can call him Daddy. See, some of you had fathers that were very stern. Don't you ever cross me. And if you do, you might want to get out of my house. Because you know what? I'm just putting up with you. That's not God. I love you so much. I saw you from eternity past. And I sent my only begotten son to sacrifice himself for you. And I'm bringing you into this family, and you're not a second-rate child. None of you are if you're part of his family. And you can even call me Abba because I love you so much. It's like Daddy. I was, uh, so and I went to uh, Walmart. And I don't go in those type of stores. So I stayed out in the car. And uh, <laughs> I've been to Walmart like three times in the last four years or so. You know, but I stayed out in the car and I was doing my daytime. And, you know, and all of a sudden I heard this knock and it was my son-in-law, uh, Patrick. It just happened to be that Ashley and Patrick and uh, Nora was coming down. And, and Ashley went to... Um, to you know, do some shopping in Walmart too. You know, women do that. They go to, and then Pat. You know, do you notice the scenario? Pat and I were outside the store, and they, but anyways, and uh, so he parked right behind me. He was right behind me, and and so I got and started talking to him. And you know, Nora, she's the cutest little grandchild. And um, but anyway, she was sitting there. But I was I was kind of just you know just sitting outside the car, and it was kind of a warm day. And then I noticed the the uh, the uh, car was running. Now nobody leaves their car running. Uh, you know, you're wasting gas. Uh-uh, not if you have a little baby in the car that wants to keep cool. And is she okay? Is she too hot? I'm not sure if she's too hot. Oh, is she comfortable? Is the sun in her eyes? Why? Because she's a little baby. And a father looks after the little child, right? Now think about Abba Father. It's not just what we call him. It's how he refers to us. Okay? Oh, you're my little kid. Okay. And you know what, what breaks his heart is we go down the same path of sin sometimes. And it's like, don't you understand? That's what I rescued you from. Don't you understand that will hurt you? Don't you understand that that just, you know, it breaks fellowship with me? And he's looking after us just like a little baby in a, 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 a car seat, you know? Is everything okay in his life? Is, you know, think, I mean, he is looking after your every need. And if we could only grab that and say, Lord, I love you so much, I want to walk with you. So he gives us that assurance. And it's, by the way, the assurance is that the Spirit is in our life, right? Because he, he's been put in our life. John tells us that. 
And He, look at this, forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. In other words, it's the Spirit of God in my heart that puts it in my heart to cry out to God because He's put it there. The Spirit puts it in my heart to be able to go to the Father. I love you, Lord. I love you, Father. I want to pray to you. I want to trust you. It's the Spirit doing that. It's not like I'm saying, oh, I want to trust Him like a little kid, like you call Him Daddy. So he puts the spirit of his son. You notice how, I mean, that verse shows the Trinity. Verse 6, God, the Father who called us, who adopted us, wants the adoption, sent forth his spirit, the third person, the Trinity, of his son, Jesus Christ, second person, the Trinity, who sacrificed for us into your heart. The Trinity is creating assurance into your heart. He's the one. It's the spirit that places us into the body of Christ, seals us, and then convinces us that we are indeed sons and daughters of God. Have you ever questioned whether or not you're a son or daughter of God? Ask Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God to convince you, confirm. And it's, and it's done through transformation and following Him. And then finally, Paul ends in verse 7. The consummation or the result of being a son. The result. What's the final result? Therefore, you are no longer a slave, that's verse 1, but a son. Ah, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. See, do you see the direction here? Not just a son, not just a freed slave, and not just a son that is in the family, but a freed slave become a son who has been brought into the family and is an inheritor. It's only sons who inherit. And again, the adoption took place. All rights and will, I mean, all the rights and responsibility given to the Son. And all of God's children, all of God's children are included in His will and testament. All. Whether male or female, bond or slave, Jew or Greek, we're all one. We're all heirs. And we've been able to, in fact, Romans 8 says this, that then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There again, getting back to, I'm so united with Christ, I'm a joint heir with him. And how God looks at me is by looking at Christ. He sees Christ because of the unity. And what he would be giving Christ, he, Christ then gives to me. That's our inheritance. And we won't get into all the different things. I'll just give you one. Titus says the hope of eternal life. That, you know, right there, you have eternal life, but then all the other blessings. And someday we'll have to break them down. Now, do you see the passage? We started in verse 26 of chapter 3, sons of God. And then, we, then he talked about, in verse 29, heirs, and, but heirs of the Abrahamic promise. But then he talked about being a son, but now he's brought us all the way up to being an heir of God. Completion. I mean, these are family terms. These are adoption terms. This is the Spirit being sent. This is Abba Father term. This is the fact that we are a body of Christ Universal, In other words, any Christian that you ever meet. But more, let's just go right here. I want to bring this down to one application. A few points, but one application. How should we function as, as children of God? You were purchased out of the uh, slave market, made a son, made an heir. Don't you see with God that we should be functioning well together? And then he puts us into a physical local church called the Alpha and Bible Church. And we should be functioning well as sons and daughters. And I think sometimes we don't. In fact, I have this question for you. Can differences and disagreements in the church be beneficial? 
See, because he puts us in, and some of you are male and some are female. Some of you have a preference towards maybe some type of music or certain types of colors or certain type of decorations. Maybe you go to the Bible and you say, see, this is the way I think the leadership should act. Maybe there's shepherding issues that you deal with. Maybe you call the church and you say, well, the office management is not right. I'm just giving you a lot of things where there's been disagreements over the years within a, this group called the Alpha Allen Bible Church. And my thought is this. Can differences and disagreements in the church be beneficial? I think it's planned. God put us all together and he said, listen, I've given you all the benefits. I've told you everything I've done for you. Now get along. Get along in such a way that you honor me. Get along in such a way that you really learn to love each other. Let me give you a few things. You know, these differences and disagreements, one, give us an opportunity to develop our biblical thinking. When I say biblical thinking, I'm saying convictions and preferences, dividing those off as we search the scriptures. It gives us an opportunity to look at the word of God and say, really, what is a conviction? And really, what is just my own preference that I can lay aside? Proverbs 15 says this, the heart of a righteous studies how to answer. The heart of a righteous studies. And I think when you see differences in the church, you should immediately say, is this a preference or a conviction? Is this something that I even should fight for? Because maybe it's just my own preference. How about number two? You see a difference or a disagreement, it gives us an opportunity to practice servanthood and to prefer one another. Last week we said, Romans 12, be be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another. It's a great opportunity to be a servant. You see that? See, sometimes we look, no, I want my way. By the way, that's what a child does. And many times that's what a child does just before I spank them. <laughs> Number three, differences and disagreements give us an opportunity to strengthen our faith in the truth that God is working all things together for good. Right? It gives us an opportunity to strengthen that truth in our life that indeed God is working all things for his good. Right? All things work together for good to those who love God. All things. Even when I disagree about that particular little issue in the church. <laughs> but sometimes that little issue in the church becomes really big and it becomes a conviction and that's something to die for. And God said, you know what? All things work together for good. You know, the difference in disagreement also, number four, it gives us an opportunity to produce maturity through patience and sacrifice. I was telling this, the uh, parenting class that I'm, in some respects, a, a pushover in some areas. They all laugh because, oh, no, you're too strict. Well, maybe I was years and years ago, but I've been coming less and less. You know, as you get older, it's like things don't matter anymore. Like, you know, like this whole list of things that I used to die for, whatever, do whatever you want. You know what I mean? I'm not saying at home. I'm just saying life in general, so many things become non-important. Why? Because I'm more mature I'm more patient and I'm more willing to sacrifice on things. He puts a group of people together and says, listen, I'm doing this. I didn't give you a whole... You're not homogeneous in the way you're thinking. You're going to think differently, have different preferences, but now I want you to really get along and love one another and prefer one another. And because through that, you're going to learn to sacrifice and learn to endure, which matures you. The trials of your faith produces patience and matures you. And sometimes the trial is something that even happens in this church. It might even be this. Well, you know, something happened in my life and pastor or the elders weren't there. 
Well, maybe that's the point of patience in your life. It's saying, you know what? They're only human. They didn't even know. And then finally, can differences and disagreements in the church be beneficial? Yeah. It gives us an opportunity to love and glorify God. It gives us an opportunity to glorify God. And maybe if I sacrifice and I say nothing about it, God is glorified because he looks at me or looks at you and says, you know what? He sees the priority. And it's not about getting his way. It's about loving me. That's what God would say. There's an interesting verse in Ephesians 4. The part says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The word endeavoring means this, exert yourself. Exert yourself to keep to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Exert yourself to keep the unity. Exert yourself to preserve the unity. The unity. I think sometimes we don't preserve the unity. In fact, one man said this, with believers, we don't have to make the unity. We just have to keep it. We're not trying to create the unity. He already created it when he brought us from being a slave to a son and to his family, a joint heir. That's the unity. Now what God says, listen, I've already made you one. You're in Christ. But now I want you to strive to keep it. Because what invariably happens with selfish people is uh, factions, right? Keep the unity. Because in keeping the unity, you're going to glorify me.